I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Billboard Charfy Podcast. Gary Trust, Billboard Senior Director of Charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. So our year-end 2018 charts are live on Billboard.com. I posted last week. So uh, this week on the podcast, we're going to look at this year's, but also uh, do some time traveling. We're going to recap every number one song of the year on the Hot 100 going back to the beginning. 1958, when the chart started, uh, going to go all the way to 2018. We're going to uh, split it up over two weeks. So we're going to go to 1989 this week. We're going to bring in uh, some not, special... not Taylor Swift 1989, uh, but the real 1989. Yeah, before we were born, that was, was actually a year that happened. Uh, so we have some special guests coming up, uh, interviews with a couple people who sang a number one song of the year. So we've got one this week, we've got one next week, and uh, yeah, that's all on the way. Uh, flashing back 1958 to 1989 this week, uh, and 1990, 2018 next week. Don't want to ignore this week's charts, though, because there's a lot going on uh, on this week's charts, uh, specifically on the Hot 100 this week. Look what you taught me, that I Ariana Grande comes out ahead, number one once again. Thank You Next is back on top. And how about this? We saw the video that came out for it, not this past Friday, but the week before. So many 2000s references. Legally Blonde, Mean Girls, 13 Go On 30. Everyone knew it was going to be a big video, been teased for a while. And sure enough, the song delivers. Huge week in streaming. How huge are we talking? We're talking record-breaking week. The biggest streaming week ever for a woman talking 93.8 million streams for the song. So that breaks the record that was set last year by Taylor Swift when Look What You Made Me Do came out. And is the seventh biggest streaming week overall uh, for those who somehow may have forgotten. Drake holds that all-time record when In My Feelings was blowing up from the Shiggy Challenge. 116 million streams in a single week. So uh, Ariana last week honored as Billboard's Woman of the Year for 2018. How does she follow it up? Makes history in the charts. Seems like uh, she deserved the honor. She proved it. Yeah, it's almost a separate discussion, really, just the state of Ariana Grande's 2018, because I think how many 
pop singers we had seen in the past, I mean, year and a half, not really make their mark. And I know Ariana Grande is younger, so it's not quite that 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 same age bias. But I mean, I I don't know if I'm in the minority on this. I'm used to being in the minority. It's cool, but I wonder if anybody really saw this 2018 coming for her. Especially we'd seen Drake chomp up so much of the charts. We had seen the first couple songs, No Tears Left to Cry, God is Woman. They were big hits, but they weren't, you know, they weren't number ones. They weren't the talk of the conversation. So for this sort of fourth quarter blow up, it just seems something that I I didn't see coming. Yeah, obviously she's had a great year, but I I think you just hit it. It's uh, if it had been No Tears Left to Cry and God is a Woman and Breathing, sure, it would have been a good year. But uh, Sweetener comes out and it turns out, as sometimes happens, uh, it's not a song from the album. Something else just comes along so organically, so naturally. And uh, yeah, that's what really uh, took her year to another level. And it seems like, you know, maybe it's not quite over yet. There's there's all the talk that Thank You Next should be the name of the album that's coming out soon. It seems like it's very much mostly recorded, if not set. No date, obviously, but it feels like this momentum is not just going to be on a one-off single but it's really going to carry into could be as soon as this year early next year but sooner rather than later for sure uh, so ariana woman of the year uh trevor and i both went to billboard's uh women in music event last week any specific highlights for you trevor from the night um yeah well funny i was i was about three steps from ariana grande at one point she was taking a photo of somebody else and it was it was weird timing because i wanted to kind of dip in there and get a picture but she seemed kind of busy so i missed that but i did get a picture with legendary patty labelle yeah so that was you know it was one of those ones where she was kind of like trying to walk around the perimeter towards the exit and i was like nah i see you patty beeline over there you know and and, and it's great because it's not just you know i know some people take photos for sort of celebrity you know cred look who i met but i mean i'm a big fan of patty grew up in a black household so patty was you know one of the ones that was always around it always i think helps when you talk to artists and you like at least acknowledge you know their songs know something about them not just hi you know can we get a picture so that was a really nice moment and she was so nice so gracious um you know in a really good good mood and so that was all great uh, i i really liked Haley kyoko's speech where she was joking how uh, uh what did she basically say that uh, her mother said you're a rising star that's the name of the award she won so uh you can only fall from here so uh, jokingly but she, family always keeps you grounded right yeah there was something that was so nice about that moment because it was you know, it was really genuine. It probably was one of the first awards she's won, and and I think in that particular setting by some of her, you know, her, her peers and some of the most influential artists who are kind of in that style. Um, and then she shed a few tears at a moment, so you know yeah. it's always kind of a real impact. Uh, but yeah, she was a lot of fun, and she performed as well. There are a few artists who performed. Ari- Ariana performed, yeah. which I actually didn't expect. Right. But she did Thank You Next, so, you know, really one of the, not the first live performance, but one of the earliest ones that we, we've seen of that. Um but yeah, I mean, Haley, everybody, I think, you know, I mean, Janelle Monae was also there. Alicia Keys was was a good speaker for the introduction. Cindy Lauper getting the Icon Awards. Yeah, so, it was uh, I, I a lot of good moments. Yeah, the story she told of how when uh, she turned in True Colors back in 1986, the label said, where's the music? It's such a sparse song at a time in the 80s when music was so produced. Uh, turned out to be a number one hit, so. It had a little bit of music. It had enough. Still going bad on them anyway. Saw you last night, but did it all day. Yeah, a lot of murk coming in a hard way. All right, also on the Hot 100 at number six, new top 10 debuts Going Bad by Meek Mill featuring Drake. Uh, Meek Mill's first Hot 100 top 10. And Drake, he's a little bit more uh, used to the top 10. His 33rd extends his record for the most among solo males. Uh, he's getting really close to that record now. Madonna has 38. 
the Beatles have 34. So one more, he ties the Beatles for second place. Five more, Madonna. It kind of feels like the way he's going. Uh, if not, if not his next album, maybe even before then, he might have the record. Also in the top 10, back in the top 10, back in the peak. Uh, someone with, uh, she only has 28 top 10s. Drake has 33. Mariah, 28. Uh, all I want for Christmas is you, her 28. So got to the top 10 for the first time ever last year. Got to number nine uh, this year, uh, this week. Goes up 14 to seven. Looking like it, the, the way it's trending, depending on what happens above it, but because it uh, keeps gaining and we're not at Christmas yet, feels like it has a legitimate chance to go top five. Number one, not so sure about with Ariana being so huge. Feels like the streams are going to hold on. They probably won't be in the 93 million range, but I think it's still going to be pretty high. But yeah, maybe top five for Mariah going forward. Yeah, it could be, you know, sort of the little the little engine that could. Um, yeah, I mean, not only Ariana is up there, obviously Sicko Mode is, is, even though it's down to number two, still up in all metrics. Something I kind of forgot about is, even though as massive a hit as it is, there's a huge jump on that Halsey song, Without Me, this week. I mean, that had a big spike as well. Yeah, it was pretty close to number two, actually. Yeah, I mean, so it, it feels like, you know, unfortunately, a lot of songs are trending up at this moment. So it will be a little harder for Mariah, I think, to to get to number, you know, maybe the top three spots or whatever. But Mariah, of course, you know, must be really excited. She's obviously been tweeting actively about it and It'll be interesting to see, you know, where this song lands, especially in the future, because you know the lambs are going to be the closer it gets to number one. The you know the as the years go by, they will be actively engaged every year to try to make this number one. So, kind of a fun chart race to watch for not only this year but years to come. Okay, so now, as promised, we're going to turn our attention from the ghost of Christmas present to the past as we count down the number one songs of each year on the Hot 100, going back from 1958 all the way until 2018. We're going to take a break in this episode after 1989, so don't be surprised when you don't hear uh, you know, Drake or Beyonce or somebody. That'll be coming next week. Now, normally we're going to break this up into segments of five for you, but for this first one, we're going to give you actually seven in a row, so get a little bonus pack with this. Here we go. The top songs each year between 1958 all the way to 64. So you think we fired our guns and the British kept coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run him on down the Mississippi to the Sleep at all at night Just thinking of you Maybe things weren't right When I was tossing and turning Turning and tossing Tossing and turning on I kicked the blankets on the 
spend a little cash Make that girl love me when I put on some trash You can understand why I've gotta get back up to that sugar shack Okay, so there's a nice little uh, musical snapshot in time. Uh, a lot of different songs in that mix, just between 1958 and 1964. What was capturing the American imagination during the time? We'll start at the top. 1958, the year that the Hot 100 came into existence, August 4th. Gary's, um, you know, it's like it's like Gary has, it's like his like it's like his favorite holiday of the year of some sort. <laughs> he always has a cake. He always, you know, brings out copies of the old Hot 100, passes them around the office, dresses up. Uh, but that was the year that the Hot 100 kicked off. So an abbreviated time frame, of course, with only five months of the year to look at. But the song that finished number one, we all know it's Volare. Hope you like my Italian accent. We've been working on that. So uh, that song has the distinction of being the first ever Hot 100 year in number one. And interesting that it's an Italian song. I mean, this is a, an entirely foreign language tune. I think people may think it might be something more in the Elvis rockabilly kind of vein. It, it's not, you know, it's it's a nice kind of standard track. Also, not only captures the American populace, but the critics as well. It's the first song to ever win Record of the Year at the Grammys and Song of the Year. So this thing was taken over really, you know, everybody's imagination. All right, 1959, we got The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton, which <laughs> I, I, don't even, I almost don't even know what to do with this song because it's such a... If you, if you haven't heard it, check it out, um, the full thing. It's just a fun sort of retelling of literally the Battle of New Orleans, which uh, for the non-history buffs in the room, that's back when General Andrew Jackson defeated the British at a place called, hey, New Orleans. Um, that kind of helped spur him and won the War of 1812 and got Jackson all the way up to the presidency. So just kind of a lighthearted sort of comic take on it. Um, really fun. Actually, an Arkansas principal came up with this song named Jimmy Driftwood to try to get his kids into history. So even some of those viral videos you see nowadays of teachers trying to, you know, use rap and those kind of things. This has precedent way back in the 1950s. Uh, none of those songs get into number one. So I guess uh, Jimmy Driftwood's got that got that going for him. We also had you know, Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire, a history song. Well, actually, that was 1959. Billy Joel was 1989. So 30 years apart next year. That's it, 2019. Somebody, if you can make learning fun. That could be a huge thing. If anyone's listening and yelling at us, uh, something called Hamilton. It's been out recently. Yes. Uh, yes. Very much so. There's that. Uh, the, yeah. And I mean, even yeah, the pop culture takeover has been very, very important for that. All right. So we've got foreign language. We've got sort of a history comic book in 1960. We got another variable thrown in there with an instrumental theme from a summer place uh, by Percy Faith and his orchestra. It was a film. Called the Summer Place back in 1960, starring Sandra D, among others. Uh, the song is composed by Max Steiner, who some film buffs may know, having composed the score to Gone with the Wind and Casablanca, among others. And again, one of those things that may be hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around today. This instrumental theme, nine weeks at number one, it was uh, tying a then record with also Mac the Knife. And it seems like, you know, how is an instrumental going to hold on for? 
nine weeks. Do you think an instrumental track today, Gary, could, you know, it, any type of instrumental track could, could get to number one again? I feel like it would be a dance driven instrumental, something that's sort of uh, just driven by a riff, kind of like happier. Like a sandstorm kind of? Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> more even like, like a happier, but without lyrics because it feels like a big part of that hook is actually just the music so uh probably something like that probably probably something that doesn't sound like theme from a summer place and just to sort of run parallel to what's going on at the time um looking at the top albums of the year the pop albums uh, a lot of show tunes a lot of scores so in a pre-rock and roll era this is what's this is what people want to listen to uh top albums of the year running through the 50s really quick we got my fair lady 57 58 uh, Henry Mancini, another conductor, music from Peter Gunn in 59, Sound of Music in 60, 61 is Camelot, 62, 63, West Side Story. So this is what the American public is not just wanting, but buying in huge numbers at the time. So in a pre-rock era, composers and, and film scores, they could compete just as well with any you know pop and vocal melody out there. 61, um, we're going to change tunes a little bit. That was Tossing and Turning by Bobby Lewis. That is our first R&B number one to end the year and uh, the first by a black artist. So Bobby Lewis making some history there. All right, uh, 62, we got Stranger on the Shore by Mr. Acker Bilk, another instrumental um, clarinet piece he actually composed for his daughter, Jenny. Wow. Now that now that's something that you compose a piece for your daughter and ends up being number one on the charts. 1963, we got Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs, which kind of becomes a microcosm of what happens to a lot of these American groups in this this time. is huge hit in 1963. They go on to have another top 20 hit at the top of the next year called Daisy Petal Pickin', gets to number 15. And then they won't be in the top 40 again until 1968 with the song Bottle of Wine, an eventual number nine hit. What happens in that gap that keeps them away from the top 10? Well, unfortunately, like a lot of pop, doo-wop vocal groups at the time, they get really washed out by rock and roll with the Beatles' arrival in particular in 1964, just really decimating so many of the American male groups of the time. And to wrap us up here at 1964, I mean, a song that really, I think music historians can say, this, this, this was a new moment in rock and roll music history when the Beatles showed up and how appropriate that their first stateside hit, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was the biggest tune of 1964. Seven weeks at number one throughout the year and the first of the Beatles still record 20 number one hits on the Hot 100. And I mean, 1964, there's so many ways you can cut it just in terms of how big it was for the Beatles. Uh, but I think chart fans generally agree, probably the most impressive feat of the year for one week in April. They had the entire top five of the Billboard Hot 100, April 4th, 1964, a date that is marked, I'm sure, on so many chart fans' calendars. And really, I mean, the Beatles had only come over about two months before that. So not only to, to make an impact that big, but to just dominate the scene that quickly. And, you know, the other thing, too, about uh, this song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, is uh, some years uh, there is a number one song of the year that just the way the numbers fall, it you know, maybe doesn't quite uh, pop culturally feel like it was the number one song of the year. This is maybe the best example uh, we're going to hit uh, of these uh, 60 years of number ones. Uh, it feels unquestionable. How could anything else be the number one song of 1964? This one, uh, this one worked out perfectly. All right, and we're going to move on. We're going to hear the Beatles. Coming up in just a few seconds, once again, a very different type of tune. 
Here we go, jumping ahead to finish out the 1960s. Here are the top songs of the year from 1965 through 1969. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Songs of the Year from 1965 to 1969 here on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Going back to 1965, Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. One of those uh, songs that just uh, feels so so of its time, but just a really, really fun song. Uh, sort of those uh, goofy uh, garage rock kind of songs of the... Uh, it feels maybe even titled bit more to the early 60s, but yeah, number one song of 1965. Uh, younger people may know it more from a lot of the movies it's been in over the years. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Scrooged, Happy Gilmore. Uh, it's even in Bill Maher's Religious. So a song just can really go anywhere. Here's my, maybe my favorite uh, sync the song has had. Fozzie Bear covered it for the 93 album Muppet Beach Party. Uh, 1966, moving on to Ballad of the Green Berets by Sergeant Barry Sadler. Uh, interesting case of his career. Uh, American soldier, musician, author, uh, military background, served as a Green Beret medic, uh, rose to the rank of staff sergeant, served in the Vietnam War in 64 and 65. So uh, a lot of his creative output it was military themed and yeah, you might think, how did that resonate in 1966? But if you think uh, culturally what was going on in the mid to late sixties, that was really on the mind of the public consciousness. So for a song like that to uh, cut through uh, and be the number one song of the year, it's yeah, maybe in some level kind of surprising, but really when you think about it, uh, not that surprising. All right. 1967 for Lulu to Sir with love from the movie of the same name. This was Lulu's only number one or even top 10, uh, the Mindbenders sing on this song uh, as vocalists as well. Uh, not that you uh, may necessarily be too familiar with what they did, but they originally uh, recorded Groovy Kind of Love, number two hit, 1966. Phil Collins took it to number one in 1988. So uh, it's actually kind of a tie-in to what's going on in the charts now that the Mindbenders were on this song to serve with love, but they weren't credited. It was just Lulu, uh, just like Sicko Mode here in 2018 with Drake being such a big part of that song, but Travis Scott being uh, the only credited artist. So uh, Drake 
and the Mindbenders. Exact same thing. 1968, Hey Jude by the Beatles. We were just talking before about I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, being the number one song of 1964. Four years later, the Beatles, not like they, not like they disappeared and came back four years later. They were, they were still pretty popular uh, in between. This song. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Uh, nine weeks at number one. So uh, this is their longest leading Hot 100 number one ever uh, of their 20, uh, their record, 20 number one. So uh, nine weeks for Hey Jude, seven for I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, they also had two others that were uh, five-week number ones each, Can't Buy Me Love and Get Back. So uh, so they had four number ones that led for at least five weeks or more. And just looking historically how big a deal that was, here's just another way to show how big the Beatles were uh, at their peak in the 60s. Uh, so about one out of every 10 songs got five weeks at number one uh, from the beginning of the chart through the end of the 60s. So uh, pretty rare, one in 10, about 100 number ones did that. The Beatles did that four times. Wasn't rare for them at all. And uh, also interesting, as you were uh, kind of saying before, Trevor, how I Want to Hold Your Hand represents one sound of the Beatles. Hey Jude really showed their progression into more uh, classic rock. It's a totally different sound, but uh, that was uh, the magic of the Beatles. They could they could do almost any sound, and uh, they changed pop music. Uh, this might be more of a classic rock sound. They made it pop. Uh, everything they did pretty much translated. And going from a song that uh, feels uh, much more serious, uh, Hey Jude, to Sugar Sugar by the Archies uh, studio group. Uh, real known talent, though, behind the scenes. Andy Kim co-wrote the song. He'd go on to have a number one of his own with Rock Me Gently. And Don Kirshner is the guy who managed the studio group. He also oversaw the Monkees. So his uh, tie-ins to TV and music, uh, he, he certainly knew what he was doing, getting all these hit songs for these acts that uh, yeah, always proves people kind of don't care who's doing the music. They just care what they're hearing. So uh, it worked. Great songs. Sugar Sugar, all the monkeys uh, songs. And uh, apparently this isn't true, but it makes for a really fun story. I almost hope it's true. The, the monkeys maybe were offered this song, Sugar Sugar. Mike Nesmith of the monkeys, uh, maybe, apparently, reportedly, put his fist through the wall of the Beverly Hills Hotel, refusing to record it. It's too goofy for the monkeys. Damn, that's, that's some anger management issues. <laughs> may, maybe a myth, but kind of I hope it's, it's true. Not. Yeah. So uh, turns out he was wrong. Turned out to be a number one song of the year for the Archies. All right, moving on. Let's go into the 70s now. The number one song of each year on the Billboard Hot 100 for the year end, 1970 through 1974. <laughs>
Jumping into the top half of the 1970s, we've got, to kick off the decade, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, which actually shared its name with the album that was number one for the end of that year in the Billboard 200. So the first time that an artist actually had the top Hot 100 song and Billboard 200 album in the same year. Um, Also, kind of with the mood of this song, interesting that... Maybe it's a little too on the nose, but when you shift from the 60s into the 70s, um, a decade in particular, where we'll see um, a lot of singer-songwriters in Billy Joel mode, Elton John kind of mode. This this just has some uh, sort of a more, uh, I don't want to oversell sort of heavy feeling to it, but certainly, certainly the different type of composition than something like a Sugar Sugar or Wooly Bully, something that's kind of fun and easily sing-alongable, easily singable. I like sing-alongable. Sing along of all. <laughs> Moving on to 1971, we've got Three Dog Night, Joy to the World. Not quite the uh, classic Christmas carol that is in the hymnal. Um, one of the best known opening lines probably in all of music, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Uh, song also got a second life as part of Mariah Carey's, uh, her, her, so Joy to the World, obviously a holiday song, uh, this uh, Totally different composition, but she did a medley on her Merry Christmas album, 1994. So uh, she goes from uh, the Christmas joy to the world to the Three Dog Night version. Pretty seamless uh, mashup. Yeah, I wonder if people realize that's like not like i know people may realize it's not sort of the hymnal joy to the world but in a way because i mean it fits so well into the melody i wonder if people think that it's that maybe it's like a hidden verse or or sort of comes to it and it's not an entirely different composition yeah and uh, yeah all i want for christmas is you just gets all the attention from the merry christmas album but that joy to the world that was another great song on there there's uh miss you most at christmas time a ballad there there are other songs that album does well every year it comes back so i know uh, people do know these songs but uh, yeah it's not just all i want for christmas is you Okay, uh, we'll shove the Mariah talk for now. So you can anything Gary can turn into a, a lamb conversation. It's it's quite a remarkable like sort of X Men power he has. All right, well we're gonna go to 1972. We're going to look at Robert Flack. Uh, the song is the first time ever I saw your face. So I guess that takes the award right now for the longest title to end the year at number one on the Hot 100. Uh, Robert Flack also notably the first black woman to have the Hot 100's year-end number one title. Um, this song may be kind of overshadowed in the catalog by Killing Me Softly with his song, which comes out uh, pretty soon afterwards, but um, at the time, really lauded, obviously, a number one hit, wins record of the year at the Grammys. She actually wins record of the year the year after for Killing Me Softly, so she's the first person to win record of the year in back 
back-to-back years. So a pretty impressive feat there. Um, but kind of in that same vein, a, a very s- sort of moody R&B song, piano-driven. Roberta Flack, interestingly, I think one of those singers who maybe in the shadow of an Aretha, maybe kind of lost in the shuffle between Aretha, Shaka, uh, Diana Ross, obviously popular at the same time. Kind of weird to me that she doesn't get the same sort of legacy respect to some of those other greats not, not to take away from what aretha and gladys and diana did but for as popular as roberta flack was we see here a number one song of the year the grammy awards somebody i don't think that the current generation knows really much about am i the current generation no uh, well absolutely not all right well, <laughs> then the previous generation knows 1991 she had a comeback hit with maxi priest set the night to music number six hit I like that song. It's a good song. And Maxi Priest had uh, number one with Close to You so uh, the year before. So it's kind of uh, the way that you know, labels try to bring back artists who maybe haven't had a hit in a long time, pair them with someone who's uh, much newer and, and uh, having number one hits. And it worked for the two of them. Moving on to 1973, we've got Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree, which now I guess takes the title of longest title to in the year. Roberta Flack only had the record for one year? I guess she did. That's a shame. She lost it that quickly. Back to 1974, the song that ended the year number one, The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand, of course, had been a big star for the past decade, really, in a lot of ways. Um, Had already won an album of the year Grammy at this point. So at this time, she's devoting her talents to a lot of acting roles and soundtracking. Of course, The Way We Were is from the film The Way We Were, which stars... Barbara and Robert Redford and the song goes on to win the Academy Award actually for best original song so not only a huge commercial hit ending the year at number one but a big critical favorite as well all right now moving along we'll wrap up the rest of this decade here we go from 1975 all the way through 1979 I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Number one song of the year for 1975 through 1979 on the Billboard Hot 100, going back to 75, Captain Tennille. Love will keep us together. So big run of hits they had, and that was the first of them. First of seven top tens, two number ones that they'd lead again in 1980 with Do That To Me One More Time. Uh, there's another captain on the Hot 100. There's been only two captains on the Hot 100. Do you know who the other captain is, Trevor? Captain Crudge. Captain Kangaroo, but that's not it either. It in the early 90s, dance hit, Captain Hollywood Project. Silly Love Songs by Wings. So one of nine number ones for Paul McCartney after the Beatles, uh, both solo or with Wings. Uh, so we've already talked about the Beatles. Two number one songs of the year with the Beatles, 1964 for I Want to Hold Your Hand, 1968 for Hey Jude, so uh, 1976 for Silly Love Songs. Uh, again, just another sign of the level of his career. Uh, it's now over 54 years of charting. Uh, to have two number one songs of the year with a group, uh, how do you possibly follow that up? To, to be able to then get a number one song of the year uh, with your next band. Uh, it's just a, another sign that shows uh, Paul McCartney is, is pretty uh, in, incomparable. Uh, only one other artist has done that, by the way, been number one for the year in a duo or group and then solo. So he's coming up. Uh, 1977 for Rod Stewart, number one song of the year. Tonight's the night, going to be all right. It was the second of his four number ones. Have I told my Rod Stewart meeting story on the podcast? Well, I'm sure we have new listeners who have not heard it. So regardless, I think we should tell it again. Uh, it was in uh, 1996. I was working at uh, Mix Radio in Boston. And uh, Rod Stewart had a new album out at the time, If We Fall in Love Tonight. Uh, came up to the station. Huge deal. Every I think every woman in the office suddenly was in the air studio uh, when he came in. And he was he was playing that up. He he, he seemed to love the attention. Uh, seemed like he'd have uh, some experience meeting uh, female fans over the years. Uh, but I was in the studio and he came over to me. And he, he just looked at me and uh, mussed up my hair and said, I, I like your hair, mate. And you're looking very confused. I, I had hair back then. I had more hair back then. That's the part that I'm, yeah. I believe everything up until that part. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, number one song of the year for 1977. Uh, different side of Rod Stewart. He obviously started with Maggie May with a more up-tempo sound. Uh, his work with Faces, some of his more rock side. Uh, as we see uh, so much, it's the ballads that connect. So uh, yeah, ballad hit for Rod Stewart. 1978, Andy Gibb, Shadow Dancing, his third straight number one from the start of his career. That led for seven weeks, written by Andy, Barry, Robin, and Morris Gibb. So the three official Bee Gees, plus uh, 
lowercase b, still a capital G. They were still Brothers Gibb, but not all Bee Gees, Andy Gibb, not an official uh, member of the Bee Gees. Uh, they wrote the song, apparently, uh, in about 10 minutes while the three uh, official Bee Gees were working on the film Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, a remake, sort of, of the Beatles uh, album, a uh, movie in the 70s, Steve Martin. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, in the middle of working on, on an album and a movie, just come up with a seven-week number one that winds up being the number one song of 1978. And obviously, this is totally in the middle of uh, the Bee Gees' uh, pinnacle in the late 70s, 1978. So uh, that combination of both the Bee Gees and Andy Gibb, sometimes you only think Saturday Night Fever, but when you when you add in uh, the hits they wrote and Andy Gibb recorded, it just makes it even, even more impressive than it already was. I'm sure Mother and Father Gibb were living really nice off of those royalty checks. Well, we've, we've said that it's kind of like the, the Jacksons and the Gibbs, or maybe sort of the two first families when you uh, consider uh, all the children that had uh, all these chart hits. Well, I think there might be a hierarchy there, um, you know, a l- little bit. Yeah, and maybe uh, maybe the Knowles family has something to say about that. Oh, they yeah, they, they would be in the mix, too. Uh, 1979, going back uh, to the end of the decade, and My Sharona, The Knack. So, yeah, real-life song. I think you mentioned this uh, recently on the podcast, Trevor, written about a person named Sharona, Sharona Alpert. Yeah, she's a real estate agent out in, in uh, California, I believe. And if you go to her website, this is the song that plays on loop. So she is... Very much aware of it and very much, uh, you know, a fan of it. Yeah, and it worked. The writer wrote it uh, for her, became his girlfriend. Uh, so flash forward to today and the number one song in the Hot 100, Ariana Grande's Thank You Next. Yeah, it's a real life song, too, specifically in the lyrics. So uh, there's always that that thought. Do you do you change the name? Do you uh, not make it so obvious? But uh, yeah, from Sharona to Pete Davidson and, and everybody else who's mentioned, uh We've said here on the podcast, too, that you know pop culture seems to be more meta now, so it's maybe less of a surprise that Ariana Grande would just uh, mention exact people from her life. That's just part of uh, the world now. Everyone seems to know more about people's real life. Why, why try to hide it? Uh, back then, more rare. So uh, Sharona being a real-life person uh, back then, uh, a little bit uh, not as uh, common back then. All right, let's go into the 80s right now, the number one song of every year. On the Billboard Hot 100 at the end of the year for 1984. She's ferocious, and she knows just what it takes to make it pro-blush. All the boys think she's a spy. She's got Patty Davis eyes. Horizontally, let's get physical, physical. I want to get physical. Let's get Body talk, let me 
right, the top songs of the first half of the 1980s, coming out in 1980 to 1984. We started things off there with the top hit of 1980, Call Me by Blondie. So Blondie at this point, um, really one of the big American groups there. It already had a number one hit with the song Heart of Glass a few years before. And Call Me, which is off the soundtrack to American Gigolo, which is a film starring Richard Gere, produces this massive hit. So even though the film doesn't necessarily uh, take off in the way people would like, it's always nice that the soundtrack at least did. This hit number one for six weeks in 1980. And of course, as we're talking about it here, enough to get Blondie the year-end number one title. It also helps them carry the momentum into 1981 with their next studio album, Auto American, which gives them their last two number one hits, The Tide is High and Rapture. So um, a real nice, you know, sort of five years for Blondie, right, as this sort of hybrid sound between disco, between new wave and pop is all fusing, coming together. Rap, uh, Rapture in particular, at least known to chart fans and maybe even some hip-hop fans, uh, one of the first songs to really bring rap, you know, maybe to some white kids who had never heard it before. Debbie Harry rapping, um midway through the song so could really have been the first time that a lot of people you know who necessarily weren't in the places where hip-hop was born may have heard rapping on a major record well blondie uh, coming up uh, in new york so uh, where hip-hop was, was hip-hop kind of born in some yeah. ways in the streets of new york so yeah. it kind of makes sense was it yeah gary was yeah yeah right up here Bron- bronx brooklyn yeah they would have been hip to the scene for sure look at me knowing the history of rap moving on to 1981 uh speaking of real life people like sharona Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, the top song of the year, a nine-week number one, of course. Name checks the great Betty Davis, the film actress, star, screen legend back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. And one of those songs that kind of brings some of these these older artists and, and performers to a new generation. I mean, by 1980s, Betty Davis, not necessarily the the first lady of the silver screen anymore, so kind of interesting to evoke her and bring her back into public consciousness song wins record of the year and song of the year at the grammy so a a big critical favorite as well i was uh, listening to an older american top 40 it's on the iheart app uh, in uh, boston there's a radio station that plays it so they were playing one uh, from the 80s they did an extra and it was betty davis i said this weekend i was listening and uh yeah casey Kasem was saying how uh, she was very aware that the song became a hit. Betty Davis herself. Yeah. yeah. And she, she was uh, all excited that her name was back uh, for a whole new audience. Exactly what you were saying. So it wasn't just to everybody. Uh, uh, Betty Davis herself, she she enjoyed it too. All right, jumping ahead to 1982. Top song of the year is Physical by Olivia Newton-John. And Olivia, massive star at this point. She had, she had been around really in the 70s, um, first making her way as a singer, through some country, adult contemporary kind of hits, really hits a new audience with the film Grease, which just co-stars with John Travolta, had been in Xanadu, it had a number one hit with Magic back in 1980. Physical, in a lot of ways, a, a different sound and kind of change of pace for her, very upbeat, very fun. I mean, I'm sure everybody, it's one of the songs, even if you don't really know uh, what it might actually be about, it's a song I think is so much fun for everybody to sing along to. Of course, the music video um, kind of makes fun of that as well with, with the gym setting. Everyone kind of, in a weird way, getting into a cultural, physical craze around the same time. So it really kind of lines up with the zeitgeist of what's going on in that moment. But really interesting that Olivia was able to sort of turn that image that she had not really been known for in the 70s for kind of any upbeat, fun, high-tempo songs into this massive, massive hit. 
number one for 10 weeks on the Hot 100, which at the time was uh, a record that she shared with Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. Kind of cool that she was able to flip that script and make it the biggest hit of her entire career. And uh, you talk about the video timing. So 1982, that's uh, a year into MTV's birth in August 1981. And, you know, some artists had trouble making that transition from pre-videos to, to videos. And uh, I think she, she did that pretty well. With yeah. That video. I mean, of course, you know, being at a gym, a lot of, you know, uh, I mean, it starts off kind of comedically with a lot of overweight people, but they turn into some very um, sculpted good-looking people by the end, so definitely does not hurt the video appeal at all. All right, jumping ahead to 1983, the year of Thriller, but the top song goes to The Police with Every Breath You Take, Sting's pseudo-stalker anthem that to this day everyone is a little, always I feel like confused, cringed by when it's very much sort of a wedding, first dance kind of song. People think of it as this sort of great romantic uh, confession and you know really if you dive into it it's a little it's a little more than just that now for those who may not know the original as well um certainly the next generation got into it through its mm, remake if you want to call it that uh at least turned on its head by a guy who's who's really good at taking samples and flipping them upside down puff daddy who took this track and turned it into i'll be missing you with faith evans and featuring 112 as a tribute to the notorious B.I.G. when he was killed in 1997, and probably one of the great performances, really, uh, of that era, Sting performing the song alongside uh, Puff Daddy and Faith Evans at the MTV Music Awards that year. Song goes on to be number one for 11 weeks atop the Hot 100, so really one of the biggest hits that is able to cross into two different generations and really two different types of audiences so uh, chart wise I, I always say you could consider that this song is the longest leading hot 100 number one of all time and yeah i'm gonna mention mariah again so uh, so uh, once we did mariah boys to men 16 weeks at number one despacito tied that last year so 16 weeks is the record uh, for any song but uh, again if you take the eight weeks for every breath you take and the 11 weeks for I'll Be Missing You, that's 19 weeks of that melody being number one. And yeah, it would be a record. And as something that's kind of come up recently, uh, with especially Juice World and Lucid Dreams, which is a sample's other Sting song, Shape of My Heart, uh, rumor has it that Sting is quite uh, heavy-handed with his royalties when you use one of his songs. So I'm sure Puff Daddy is, uh, I mean, not only, is, of course, Sting has plenty of money on his own, but Puff Daddy probably playing Puff Daddy probably paying a lot of bills at the Sumner household to this day. And wrapping things up in 1984, some, a year that some music critics call the best for music ever. Just so many different projects coming out that year. You've got uh, Tina Turner's comeback with Private Dancer. You've got Born in the USA lighting up the charts. And of course, you have the year of Purple Rain and the number one title, Princes When Doves Cry. Uh, the big hit of that summer in particular, five weeks at number one in 1984. Really just, I mean, the summer that everything for Prince came together. He'd already, of course, been uh, a very big star with 1989 and his albums beforehand. But that summer with the combination of the movie, this blockbuster album, and this standout single. And if you haven't seen the video, I mean, it's it's quintessential Prince. You know, he's 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 fun, he's funky, but he's a little weird. And it all just comes together in this perfect storm. That lands him at number one. I think when we think back at Prince, we think uh, just total superstar, which he is. But back then, this was the beginning of that. It wasn't like he was that much of an established uh, 
star like we think of now. This this is kind of what did that. Yeah, I mean, of course, Purple Rain. I mean, that's just the quintessential gem in his catalog. Really, the song in a lot of ways, but certainly the album and. 24 straight weeks at number one on the Billboard 200. So it just goes to show that that year really encapsulated so much when you have Born in the USA, when you're still having Thriller out there, when you've got Tina Turner, you've got Wham, so many artists out there, and Prince is able to take the top spot from all of them. Now you're mentioning Wham. They're coming up right now as we continue. Uh, here's our last five for this week. Number one song of the year for 1985 through 1989 and a special guest coming up. to 1989, the number one song of each year on the year-end Billboard Hot 100. Uh, Careless Whisper by Wham, uh, technically featuring George Michael, but still uh, a Wham single. So uh, remember before we said uh, Paul McCartney is one of two artists with number one songs of the year on the Hot 100, both in a duo or group and solo. George Michael, he's the other. So uh, 1985 for Careless Whisper with Wham, and we also just heard in that segment George Solo with Faith for 1988. Uh, yeah, George Michael and Paul McCartney together. And they recorded together. There's a song that George Michael had in 1990 called Heal the Pain. And then in 2008, Paul McCartney joined George Michael to do a remake of that. If uh, you've seen uh, any of the George Michael documentaries that's, uh, that have come out uh, since he passed, he talks about what a thrill it was. He, he couldn't believe that Paul McCartney was uh, recording a song with him that he'd written in the style of Paul McCartney. His actual piece of that song. How can I help you? I can heal the pain that you feel inside Whenever you want me You know that I will be Waiting for the day that you say you'll be mine All right, moving on to 1986 for That's What Friends Are For, Dion and Friends. Uh, her friends. Uh, uh, too many people have friends on the level of fame, like uh, Dion Warwick did on this song, Elton John, Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight. 
Uh, Song benefited AIDS research and awareness, raised over $3 million. And I I think sometimes that gets lost, maybe, that it was a charity single. Because I think we think 84, 85, 86, we're thinking we are the world. Do they know it's Christmas? Maybe because there weren't uh, 43 acts uh, only, uh, about only four on the song. You kind of forget, yeah, this was an all-star charity song. Also, I'll say, if you have not heard the live rendition where, unfortunately, I guess, Maybe uh, Elton and Gladys couldn't make it. There's an, a, a rendition that has Dion and Stevie singing with Luther Vandross and Whitney Houston. And you can only imagine that how much of a vocal, you know, display that that song is. So it's out there on YouTube. If you have not heard it, uh, give it a shot. Because in particular, Luther tears it up. And this is the best note I've heard somebody sing in a long, long time. He just, just, just here. That was the B team, Luther and Whitney. I, yeah, I guess they were second string. They were the, the understudies. Yeah, yeah, call the reserves. It was, wow, but still. All right, uh, number one song of the year for 1987, Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles. So a four-week number one. Uh, most of the Bangles' big hits feature Susanna Hoffs exclusively on lead vocals, uh, Manic Monday, Eternal Flame, especially. Uh, this one more of a group effort with uh, the Peterson sisters, uh, kind of trading off uh, a goofy kind of a song. It feels like uh, it's kind of a big swing. It was either going to be a, a big hit or, or just way too weird, a big miss. Uh, totally worked. So, yeah, four-week number one. Uh, I have a formula, Trevor, how to get a number one song of the year. It's really easy. You know mm-hmm. what it is? Okay. Go Egyptian. So this song, number one for 1987. We heard back uh, 1965, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs also playing up Egyptian culture. Oh, wow. So forget simple. those 25 years in between where that didn't work. Those two examples. But yeah, that's crazy. But also, and maybe this is a little simplistic, uh, if I remember correctly from, from reading this in ancient history textbooks, People like love like to like sort of do the Egyptian walk. Yeah. And it was almost like sort of like a like a real life dance craze in a sense. I guess before, yeah. you know, it's not really a dance, but in the same way, maybe nowadays you sort of meme it at least. Like, feels like that was like you know the thing to do. Like there was an associated move with that song, which may have helped sort of spread the popularity. The time in the eighties, there just seemed like there were all these hits where. Uh, pop culture, just uh, American pop culture, just started uh, uh, finding something fun in every uh, other culture. Walking Egyptian, Down Under for Men at Work, uh, going to Australia, just kind of feels like it became a sort of a lyrical trend. I mean, Kokomo, all those, you know, sort of exotic places. Yeah. Africa, of course. Right. By Toto, you know. Uh, in 1988, we we're just talking about George Michael. So that was uh, the solo number one he had for the year for 1988 Faith. Uh, just like you were saying before about Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, uh, album and song of the year having the same title. So Faith, uh, the title cut from Faith. And this one always, always kind of personal for me because this was the first number one song of the year that I was aware of. I just started following charts in mid, later 1988. And I was listening to American Top 40. This is actually when uh, Shadow Stevens took over for Casey Kasem. And uh, I found out at the end of the year that, oh, uh, Billboard, American Top 40, uh, does something called year-end charts. And uh, found out that Faith was the number one song of the year. So uh, to this date, every year, I, when I find out what the number one song is, it's always uh, Faith was kind of the standard bearer. So uh, if you're as big a hit as Faith uh, now, it's kind of, uh, yeah, that's, that's really as big as it gets. So, uh, yeah, George Michael Faith, number one for 1988. 
And wrapping things up for this week, 1989, number one for the entire year, Look Away by Chicago. Uh, all right, so I was just talking about how uh, 1988, I, I learned that American Top 40 did the year-end number one song of the year. So uh, the next year, I was really looking forward to it all throughout the year. What what would be the number one song of the year? And different uh, chart methodology back then. So unlike now, when you get maybe 10, 10 to 15 number one songs of the year back then, uh, you had about 30 number one songs of the year, almost nothing uh, stayed at number one for a long time. So it's kind of hard to predict what number one would be. Total surprise. Uh, if you, you know, no internet at the time. Couldn't really uh, look up any of this information. But, so remember, uh, 1989, I was excited to find out the number one song of the year. And uh, and then I'm listening to Kiss 108 in Boston. And this is about a year after the song had been out. It was, it was out late 1988. Uh, they played Look Away by Chicago. I thought that was kind of weird. I'm like, oh, I haven't heard that in a while. And the DJ comes on and says, that's the number one song of the year, according to Billboard. Before I heard that on American Top 40. Oh, you got the scoop. Did, could you handle that? No. Did it, you feel shattered? Did you like, duh, like someone spoiled it for yeah, you? I feel like to this day, whenever I, I still listen to Kiss One Away a lot in Boston, but I, it's always in the back of my mind. They did that. They betrayed you. Yeah. Ouch. Uh, all right. Someone who knows a little bit more, the guy who sang it. Bill Champlin is the lead singer of Chicago from 1981 to 2009. One of the one of the lead singers, uh, obviously Peter Cetera, was there when he joined the band. Uh, first major hit uh, that Bill Champlin sang on, "Heart Happened to Break." They trade vocals, a pretty interesting layering going on there. A uh, year later, in 1985, Peter Cetera left, and Chicago did what many bands historically haven't been able to do. Let's have more major success with new vocalists. So Bill Champlin was able to keep that run of Chicago going. Also, Jason Sheff, uh, the other singer. So uh, they just kept going. Even after Peter Cetera left, had a big solo career. Uh, this is a Diane Warren song, by the way, and she's had many hits. We had her on the podcast earlier this year. So big combination of uh, hit songwriter, band, uh, at this point had been out uh, about 20 years of having hits and connected to be the number one song of the year from 1989. Uh, got Bill Champlin on the phone recently to talk about his memories of the song. And here's the guy who's saying, look away on the Billboard Sharpie podcast. It's Bill Champlin. Well, you called me up this morning, told me about the new love you found. I'm really happy for you. Bill Champlin, thank you so much for coming on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Billboard Magazine, that's, that's the Bible, isn't it? They called it the Bible for years. <laughs> Have you been, a, I'm assuming you've been a pretty big Billboard fan over the years, Bill, considering how much you've been on our pages, on our charts? Yeah, you know, I mean, whenever I got a record that's, that's kind of doing something, I mean, the first place I'm looking is Billboard, so how are we doing on Billboard, that kind of situation. Oh, nice. We had one. We had one year that was really great, where we did uh, uh, me and Jay Graydon and Steve Lukather wrote a song called "Turn Your Love Around" for George Benson, and uh, and somehow we caught the Christmas freeze where we got two extra weeks at number one, yeah. <laughs> which is because radio just at some point right right in mid December they just say, well, whatever the charts are, they're going to stay for two weeks because we're all going on vacation, <laughs> and uh, and we caught it just it's just perfect. The timing was great. I just figured. Hey, that's the way life's going to be from here on in. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, I, I guess I have to start, and this is uh, no secret if people have seen uh, the documentary that was out not that long ago and other interviews that you've done, uh, your take on Chicago. Nowadays, uh, looking back on your time in it, as you just said, you were in the band from uh, 81 to 2009, and uh, it, it, the band 
clearly you helped Chicago have hits after Peter Shatera left in the mid eighties. But, uh, you've, you've been pretty open saying that your relationship with the band now is, uh, I guess not, not that rosy. Is that fair to say? No, you know, there's no, they got no reason to talk to me. I got really no reason to talk to them. I mean, you know, if there's any, uh, you know, they, it's, it's, they're, they're at this stage of the game from what I understand. It's, I mean, I don't know. I'm not there. And I've been gone for like nine years or something, uh, eight, eight or nine years, good, good period of time. And, uh, uh, I think they're just doing the second album when they're playing and, you know, not even doing any of the, uh, apparently not even doing any of the newer stuff, you know, from Foster on. And there was a handful of hits. I mean, David obviously came up with, you know, Hard to Say I'm Sorry and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, there's three albums that Foster did that were really, really good and very successful. And then, uh, and then after that, I think Ron Nevison is the guy that kind of came in after that and we used, uh, and Ron was, did like four songs on the Chicago 19 album and look away was one of those songs. Was the band, uh, was there maybe some, I guess it's yeah, human nature. You see this with other bands that uh, started in the sixties in and seventies and had kind of their progressive rock era and then got more hit driven. Uh, late eighties, as you said, Ron Nevison, Chicago 19, you guys went uh, more of a guitar based sound and you're, you're recording Diane Warren hits. So, Maybe or was there some uh, feeling in the band that uh, you know we're not we're not being the Chicago we used to be when it was all uh, driven by horns. Now we're kind of more you know the sound of what uh, pop radio was in the late eighties. Yeah, well, I think the existing band at this point, especially with the horn, with the horn guys, they, they hated it. They couldn't stand it. But yeah. it was it was decisions that were made in boardrooms, you know. So I I, I don't really even know. I know that that up until that point up until really until look away they were basically doing everything they could to just it's all tenor everything's tenor we got to have the tenor sing it the guys the guy who's singing high got to be the guy who's doing it because satara had pretty much plowed those fields you know what i mean right and uh although peter's voice is <laughs> nothing like it in the world there's yeah. it's, it's a one-of-a-kind set of pipes you know really great singer <laughs> seriously great singer Ron Nevison came into a meeting and went, you know, I want that guy to sing it. I think Ron at one point was a was a front of house mixer for it might have been for the Jefferson Airplane or Jefferson Starship and had heard me singing with the Suns, I think, quite a bit earlier and went that I've always he'd always been a fan of my voice, so he's the guy that said, Let's get Bill to sing this. So, you know, we me and Ron went into the studio and we and we knocked off we knocked off the vocal on that song and it ended up being pretty big record i think it was one of diane warren's biggest ballads to date i mean after that forget about it she just owned owned the charts and probably still does at some level. Uh, so so look away uh, number one song on the billboard hot 100 all the the, the the first three singles from the album all top 10 hits i don't want to live without your love another uh, diane warren song also you're not alone which i feel like is a, a kind of a lost classic at this point yeah you're not alone was kind of cool uh we did it was a jimmy scott song jimmy's a, a writer actually originally from australia i wrote another tune with him at some point again a real sweet guy nice dude uh very good songwriter just uh if you can't tell me tell me about joining chicago in 1981 i interviewed timothy b schmidt a couple years ago and we were talking about what it's like uh, for him to have joined the eagles at a time when they were just you know, one of the biggest bands in the world and what that's like coming into the ride when it's already going it's maybe sort of like being traded to, to a championship team Oh, he's a sweetie pie, and uh, yeah, I've done background vocals with him. This guy's thing. <laughs> he's 
he's yeah. not fooling around. He's one of the top guys ever. You yeah. know? What was it like uh, joining Chicago? But was there any intimidation on your part? Yeah, I mean, it was like they, these guys had a, uh, you know, they had a, a running conversation going that in 28 years I was never really a, became a part of. Somehow they just, they, it's their their thing, and uh, and I I, I kind of came in during a period of time when uh, right when they started working with David Foster, and I had just finished a solo album with Foster, and uh, had worked pretty pretty extensively with David for a couple of records in a row. So I kind of knew his his move. I knew his vocal kind of vocal things that he did. So I mean, in the studio, uh, it's a little bit of a different story. I've, you know, I mean, I've spent. I mean, those guys obviously they've done a lot of records and they've been in the studio a lot, but kind of not at the same level I had. Uh, I was really a, a studio musician. I'm, I'm someone who just did vocal dates steadily all the time, and uh, and so I could relate. Especially especially my blend with Peter was ridiculous. I mean, it was just. I mean that's how I got the gig is that we were both singing background vocals on a on a demo for a friend of ours, mutual friend. And uh, Danny Sheridan happened to be the producer of the demo and when, when Peter and I started singing together he just his jaw dropped and went, Oh man, this is working. Yeah. This is a this is a this is a good thing. So that's kind of I think what sort of drove the first, you know, two or three years I was with the band was that blend between me and Peter. You know, at least when we did sing, I'm and uh, I was kind of slamming on that. But you know, the the guys, you know, the the band, as far as they're concerned, really, it's all about the horn section. It always has been, and always will be. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, there's one point where Foster was saying, "Well, you know, the the one of the horn guys comes in and he says, hey, that's a really good mix,' and he just took the lead vocal track and just turned it off. He says, "Okay, now there's your record. <laughs> there was no lead vocal on it." <laughs> Really? Okay, then I got you. <laughs> that's what you want, you yeah. know. So, well, I don't think that's quite what we're shooting for here. Does <laughs> the term "song" strike a familiar note? You know. So it was always kind of a push and pull yeah. between the original horn sound and, and having hits in the '80s. Right. Uh, a lot of synths on different things. Uh, certain synth patches were were uh, were you know getting a lot of a lot of radio play. So I mean, there was a lot of those things going on with with Look Away. Uh, and it's not even so much look away, but I don't want to live without your love. It was kind of driven by a synth, you know, synth patch. So, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you change with the times or you get left at the door. You know what I mean? Right. The way it's kind of the way it happens. So and I think that's what kind of came down during that period of time. Not that it was making anybody that happy that that was getting, getting us on the charts, but everybody was happy that we were back on the charts. Hey, man, some of the most fun I had with Chicago, we used to go bowling every Wednesday. You know, it was not a, nobody was very good at it, but we still had a ball. You know, had a great time hanging, and there was no music involved. We were just throwing the ball. You know, we just, we had a ball. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. That was, you know, it's like, okay, that was the first time it felt like we go, hey, we got a band here. And we're throwing, you know, we're bowling. <laughs> I don't think you catch anybody in a bowling alley at this point of the game, but we had a ball. We had a good time. <laughs> That's Bill Champlin on the Billboard Charpie podcast of Chicago for 28 years. Uh, band got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at last, uh, real deservedly so, and uh, hits like that helped get them in. Beach Boys in Chicago, first concert I ever saw, 1989. Beach Boys had Kokomo at that point. I was going to say, yeah, they're back. They're hot again. So, yeah. You know, maybe maybe feels like a little weird pairing at first, but, you know, there's two, two major bands 
hot at the same time. A big thanks to uh, Bill Champlin uh, for being on the Billboard Sharpie podcast. That's it for this week. Uh, 1958 to 1989 we just did. We're going to do it all over again for uh, 1990 to 2018 next week. All right, so stay tuned for that. We'll also, uh, as we did this week, have one of the artists who has the honor of having this number one song of the year be on the podcast next week. And, of course, we won't be all stuck in the past. We'll keep an eye on the weekly charts as well, see if Ariana Grande can extend her lead, um, or if the challengers right beneath her, Sicko Mode going back to number one, Halsey also still in the mix, or maybe even Mariah can make some upward progress next week and challenge for that uh, upcoming Christmas number one. Maybe Andy Williams will be in the Hot 100's top ten. Let's come on, Andy. Let's go. I'll st- I'll stand for Andy Williams top ten. I will. I'll put that on the record now. I'm standing for that. And if you don't know who Andy Williams is, you at least know the song. Taking us out. Let's hear from our old friend. Is that Andy Williams? I hear. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time